Welcome to Roughneck Dispatch, a podcast about storytelling, how we do it, why we do it, and who the hell does it best. We talk to the best storytellers about their greatest stories and why they have to tell them. I'm your host, crime writer and occasional journalist, Matt Phillips. Every episode, we start with a voice from the past. So, here we go, down the rabbit hole. This episode's voice from the past, Jorge Luis Borges. His story, Borges and I. The other one, the one called Borges, is the one things happen to. I walk through the streets of Buenos Aires and stop for a moment, perhaps mechanically now, to look at the arch of an entrance hall and the grillwork on the gate. I know of Borges from the mail and see his name on a list of professors or in a biographical dictionary. I like hourglasses, maps, 18th century typography, the taste of coffee, and the prose of Stevenson. He shares these preferences, but in a vain way that turns them into the attributes of an actor. It would be an exaggeration to say that ours is a hostile relationship. I live, let myself go on living, so that Borges may contrive his literature. And this literature justifies me. It is no effort for me to confess that he has achieved some valid pages. But those pages cannot save me, perhaps because what is good belongs to no one, not even to him, but rather to the language and to tradition. Besides, I am destined to perish, definitively, and only some instant of myself can survive in him. Little by little, I am giving over everything to him, though I am quite aware of his perverse custom of falsifying and magnifying things. Spinoza knew that all things long to persist in their being. The stone eternally wants to be a stone, and the tiger a tiger. I shall remain in Borges, not in myself, if it is true that I am someone. But I recognize myself less in his books than in many others or in the laborious strumming of a guitar. Years ago, I tried to free myself from him and went from the mythologies of the suburbs to the games with time and infinity. But those games belong to Borges now, and I shall have to imagine other things. Thus, my life is a flight, and I lose everything, and everything belongs to oblivion or to him. I do not know which of us has written this page. This episode, I'm here with Joe Perry. Joe has a PhD in English, has taught college literature and writing, and has produced and written for episodic television. She's the author of the Charlie and Rose series of books entitled Dead is Better, Dead is Best, Dead is Good, and Dead is Beautiful. These books feature a dead guy and a dead dog unraveling a series of noirish mysteries. Dead is Better is available as a limited hardback edition from Fahrenheit Press in the UK. Joe has also written what I think may be one of the best books written about the COVID lockdown era. It's called Pure follows Asher Lieb as she tries to atone for failing her dead aunt. Pure is a deeply affecting novel that details one woman's journey back to her own soul and faith. Don't get it twisted, though. Pure is a mystery novel. It's about as nor as a novel can get. Joe, welcome to Roughneck Dispatch. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So you're uh, based out of L.A., is that correct? Yes, yes. I'm a lifer, L.A. lifer. L.A. lifer. Did you grow up in L.A.? Yes, I did. Wow, that's fascinating. And uh, you, you have a family, I'm guessing, a couple children as well. I have a couple children and a husband, and I was born here and uh, in the valley. I'm a valley person. I'm not a girl anymore, but I'm a valley person. So there I am. Ah, that's great. Um, th- so yeah, I got I got some uh, smoke from people for this last podcast. Uh, Curtis and I were talking about 
Ocean Beach and some different neighborhoods in San Diego. So when you say, and they people got mad at me because I didn't define where that was for them if they're not from California. So can you define where the Valley is uh, uh, in relation to LA and w- what people would know about it? Um, well, everybody hates the Valley. It's flat. It's suburban. Uh, it's right. I live right sort of near Hollywood. If you go over the hills, the base of the Hollywood Hills in the flats, uh, it's, kind of nondescript though it's gentrified now and people have a lot of contempt for it and a couple of years ago the city had a bike event called Ciclovia where they shut they closed streets to uh cars and there was a brochure they had it in the valley right around the corner from me and they actually in the brochure said that the valley was known as the armpit of Los Angeles so that's <laughs> So the I armpit love, of Los Angeles. I love it. So there, there you go. It's anonymous and kind of sprawling and things like that. Yeah, it seems like armpit is sort of the um, the big knock on. If, if you want to knock on any city, you could say you know Stockton's the armpit of California, or the Valley's the armpit of LA. Um, I guess that's the that's the the tropey way of putting down a city. But I think what I've learned is all that really matters is that. Um, you feel at home wherever you are. Um, but that brings up an interesting point because the story I read from uh, Borges, which I should say, I picked Borges for this uh, week's or this episode's voice from the past because you have an epigraph, a Borges epigraph in, in the book Pure. And uh, it got me thinking a little bit about, this story gets me thinking a little bit about what it is to be at home in oneself. Um, and I think there's, We'll we'll talk a bit more about your book, but there's sort of um, a crisis of faith, I think, happening in the book, you know, to my mind. So I'm, you know, let's just start. What do you think about that uh, super short story for Borges and, and what are your thoughts around it? Well, I'm, I, I'm just completely a uh, real trippy couple day, day when I was reading it. And when I first read it, I thought, OK, I understand this. A man writes about his persona, his authorial persona. Okay. And, you know, I thought that's kind of interesting, but all of a sudden I thought, you know, let me refresh myself about Borges. And was he, I was wondering if he was blind already when he wrote it because he was blind. And what I found out is that um, cataracts ran in his family and actually he was having trouble seeing from birth and he was completely blind when he wrote it. So the first thing it says is I walk through the streets of Buenos Aires and stop for a moment, perhaps mechanically now, to look at the arch of an entrance hall and the grillwork of a gate. And then he says, I know Borges from the mail and see his name. And I go, what do you mean? What? Uh, what? See, what is he saying? So I started going down this sort of, not a rabbit hole, because he's too good for to be a rabbit hole. It's sort of a lattice or something that you fall through. And I realized that as he writes, the person you think is the real person as opposed to the author, is becoming the author the minute he starts telling the story. He dissolves into whatever an author is, He, which disembodies him and makes him sort of a conceptual being. And that's why at the end, he says, I don't know who wrote this. Right. Because something does happen to the... To, people when they're writing and I think painting or other things where you dissolve certain 
aspects of you that are very important in your daily life dissolve completely in the act of writing or in imagining something and you're somewhere i don't know where you are but it's not um you're not in the physical world really anymore right maybe it's like a dream you know a dream sure that's a, but it's really fun it's really it really plays with your mind the story yeah it definitely does i mean what you're talking about reminds me of a few things so i you know when you study like lorca um he has this whole concept around the duende right like this the spanish idea of like um you are writing and you sort of become this other being and you're you're touching this different world so i think that's sort of what you're describing um i mean i think it's a metaphysical thing right to be writing a story if you're doing it in a way that's um in touch with something outside of just the nuts and bolts of of say a plot um so i love that i think it's interesting i mean I'll, i mean of course this whole it's sort of like a piece of meta fiction right like lydia davis has kind of been sort of the the main meta fictional writer i guess of the past what 20 years but um i also think of like and i don't know from your your english studies like there's a there's a scholar named Seymour Chapman, I think is, is his name. And he, he talks about narr- narrative and how a narrator is not really the author. They're not really the protagonist. They're sort of somewhere in between. And this idea of narration can fall on a spectrum. And it's like, I think in this story, Borges is sort of, it's like what you said. He, he starts distant from the story in a way, the narration. And then he gets closer and closer and it's more intimate. Um, but when we talk a, about oh, go ahead. Borges, Sorry, yeah. But when we talk about Borges in the story, you know, there's this very prominent narr- It's all narrator who's saying, "I'm not the author," but he becomes the author. You cannot, you cannot be in the story without somehow being implicated in the fiction, in the what he calls contrivance. Sure, sure. That isn't you. You know, it's really. Um, it's really fun. He's very, very funny too. But uh, and also about mortality and your physical being versus your whatever your brain, you know, your consciousness is, or something like that. It's it's very interesting. He's a very funny guy. I mean, I think. He's oh, what a brilliant guy. writer, right? I mean, yeah. yeah, so amazing. And I mean, then you sent me a link where he had done self portraits um, when he lost his sight, and that's really interesting because. Thinking of um, one's control of a story or one's voice in a story, it's like when it was published. I think it was in the Paris Review. Uh, they flipped it around. It well, was upside he, down. Yes, right? words in English that I can't read. It's a very shaky um, drawing. It's not an you know. It just looks like a. There's sort of a head shape, but there's a lot of lines and shaky, shaky shapes inside and one end has the word word on the bottom and the top it has another word but it goes both ways like a like a plane right. you know he's he's yep. flipping it around so you don't know what the top and what the bottom is yeah yeah and they have a great quote from him if and, and i'll post that link to what you sent in the uh, description of this podcast so people can check it out but um he says a writer or any man must believe that whatever happens to him is an instrument everything has been given for an end he wrote and uh it's like Interesting to think of this really a disability at this point, him re-envisioning it as a, not a disability, almost like a superpower. Um, 
And I, I think you see that in his writing, you know, just this idea of seeing in new ways. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, thank you for, for talking about that. And, thank and, you uh, story. yeah, great. digging into it. Yeah. Um, well, that brings me to a question. I mean, we'll talk about your books in a bit, but um, I am interested in in uh, your history as a writer. I mean, I know you studied literature and English, but um, I imagine you've been writing like most of us have since the beginning of of your life, and to be able to write and read. But um, what um, what brought you to writing novels uh, in the last what say ten years? It's even fewer. Um, I always wrote. My dad was a comedy writer, so I'm. Lived, grew up in a house where somebody was writing all the time and it was with a typewriter um, and reading. And he was a self-taught person, so that was interesting. And uh, I was very interested in art. I started out in college as an art major, but I always wrote. I wrote po- poetry or poems and stuff like that um, pretty seriously. And that's what I did in college. You know, I was a literature major. And I was in a small program where my teachers were writers, were one were poets sure, sure. and writers, which is I think when a writer teaches you about books, it's the best thing you can get. It was really great. I learned how to read. And then I decided I wanted a PhD because I had missed a lot of things and I enjoyed that. And um then time passed anyway I was teaching and then Tom and I moved to LA my husband and I moved to LA and he's a novelist most people know Thomas Perry and he had written The Butcher's Boy and we were both working as academics bureaucrats at USC and he got a phone call and inviting him to write television feeling that his book would you know, his book would make him qualified. And he said, well, I don't know how to do that. I don't want to do that. And we talked about it. And I said, well, I kind of know how a script works because of my dad and maybe, you know, try it. And anyway, we ended up doing it together for about 11 years. We wrote oh, wow. okay. TV Got together, to episodic TV. It's so old now, but if you ever heard of Simon and Simon, the San Diego sure. brothers and all that, and that was fun. That was really fun. And then once I had a we had a kid i really couldn't do that because the hours are you know terrible i know how that is believe me and so uh and tom just ended up writing and we did write a couple other things but and then i was a mom and i wrote poetry on the side and as my kids got older and i had more time i got kind of that's another story but kind of mad at poetry in general and didn't feel I don't know. It just wasn't working for me or I wasn't working for it. And after do you the- mean, do you mean the industry or do you mean kind of poetry? The, kind of the industry and kind of, I guess. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I, it was so inspiring to me when I was young, you know, and the poets I would listen to were so exciting. And it was like, you know, you go hear Bukowski and you hear Broad again and Gary Snyder and, you know, oh my God, I love Gary Snyder. And all these people. Yeah. And they were, it wasn't always perfect or great, but there was a kind of, I don't know, freshness to everything. Maybe it's me, but then I feel like there's a certain kind of, um, kind of uh, restraint and elegance and elitism to it right now. I don't know. Anyway, sure. I wasn't, it wasn't working. And I finally had time and I sat down and I wrote Dead is Better. And so you went from poetry to writing that novel. Um, right. 
but so, so let's walk back just a little <laughs> bit because um, I know you answered my question, but now I'm going back to more questions that are coming up, which two things. One, I, I think it's, it's Gary Snyder who has um, this really interesting notion of home. So we go back to our, our initial part of this conversation, um, feeling at home in oneself or in place. And he has a really interesting quote. I'm not going to quote it directly because it's not in front of me, but he talks about how the Pacific Rim is his home, right? Everything from Japan up into the Northwest, California. And so I, I think that's really interesting um, about him and how he's uh, the notion of home that he's cultivated for himself, um, both as a as a person and, and as a writer. Um, and then I also think it was Bukowski who said something like... Um, Oh gosh, he said something like, you know, a thousand people in the United States read poetry and 10 of them buy books. And so I know what you mean when it comes to the <laughs> the industry part of it where it's um on the one hand I feel like because I was trained by poets as well in my in my masters of fine arts program. Um and I was like you where I mean Jim Carroll is pretty much my favorite writer of all time, the the rock poet and um so I grew up reading poetry. That was kind of where I was first. But uh, you get into that industry and it's sort of like, it becomes like a, almost precious, you know? Yeah. Um, too precious. But that's all beside the point. What I was going to say is that in your books, I'm thinking mostly of Pure, but I think in others, there is this very poetic element of, it's like a, there's a spirituality to it, like a personalness to it that, is beyond what you find in a genre novel. Um, so I'm curious whether that's conscious or that's just part of who you are as a writer um, and whether or not you even see that or I feel see that. poetry in your writing. So I see, but it's not um, decorativeness. It's the most powerful economical kind of writing. And I, I think that's what poetry, you know, when you feel like your head, the top of your head is coming off, that's poetry. That's poetry to me. And, you know, I sometimes think that, uh, and it doesn't matter how it comes off or, you know, how you get it to come off or anything. There are all different ways literature does that, but you do it. Um, anyway, and that, you know, fiction is poetry, basically, that, um how do I, okay, I'm trying to, what are you asking me now? I have to get well, back. I was asking about the spiritual nature of well, the characters in the book. I write in the first person most of the time, except in short stories and my novella. Um, it's, uh, I think it has that, you know, I always wrote lyric poems, first person. So there you go. And I guess that's where I'm comfortable. That's where I'm at home. There are limits to that. There are problems with that. But you can, I feel you can um, work those out or compensate for the reader. You know, I think there are a lot of people hate it. I've heard they don't like it. I'm sorry. They don't like it. I like it. But sure. there's an intimacy there. And the voice, I think fiction, you know, is these people talk, you know, the voices of the characters are very poetic in the sense of. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, the first person, third person or whatever it is, questions are always um, interesting to contemplate. I mean, I've always found that it's like it starts with character for me and then it however I feel that voice is where I start. But um, I, you know, when I think about pure um, the book almost feel, I mean, what I love about it is it feels like a memoir. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? 
Um, and I, part of it's the structure, right? The way you've done like the short chapters and they're almost like feel a little bit like journal entries, even though they're not. Um, but I loved that about it, that very personal closeness to the character. So, um, it's an interesting question. I think too, in genre fiction, I think you're right. I think a lot of people really lean towards that third person approach where you can jump multiple points of view across chapters and sections of the book. Um, and you know, I, I, I think probably Elmore Leonard's done that the best for me in my estimation, but, um, other people do it well as, as well, but, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, there's something to be said for that, that first person closeness that you can get as a reader. And when another, when you have a narrator as a character too, that's why I got into a fight with somebody. I said, all narrators are unreliable because <laughs> there's always a limit to what they, you know, they're leaving something out. They're not telling you something there, but um, you know, there's, and any character that speaks is, entering a whole other point of view, whether you're, you know, in other words, the reader's getting other voices, other consciousnesses, if anybody else is in there. But yeah, I don't know. It's just, you know, I say I'm genre fluid. That's what I am. So yeah. And I also think, I mean, I love this idea of unreliable narrators. One of my favorite books is a uh, savage night by Jim Thompson with the unreliable narrator, but, um, yeah, it's funny because I, I do feel like genre fiction sort of gets this rap of not being literary. And it's it's total bullshit. I mean, it's like, I read your book and it's like, no, this is a literary novel. In fact, I'm surprised that it wasn't published with like a bigger imprint or a bigger publisher. But um, I think the unreliability sometimes come, it comes into genre fiction when we have these very heroic characters, right? It's like, nobody's that heroic. Nobody's that badass. You know what I mean? And that to me is, it's not just unreliable. It's disingenuous in a way. Um, you know, genre, again, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Genre is my husband pointed this out, but I think it's so true. It's, it's a genre is something sales people can think about which shelf do they put your book on? How do they sell your book to booksellers? So they say, like in TV, it was always, you know, it's um, the singing nun meets Die Hard. You know, you have to express. Sure, you got to have a pitch. Two weird uh, other existing stories. It's ludicrous most of the time. It's very funny. But um, so it has to be a noun. It has to be sort of, you know, you fit in and you go, okay, well, those people will like it. And with, you know, so you say this is a cozy or this is a this. And, you know, I was really shocked my first um, Left Coast Crime. I was sitting at a table with people who were cozy fans and they introduced themselves and one said, well, I only read animal cozies and I only read, I don't know, like food cozies and stuff. And I like cozies, but I said, wow. And I said, what about something else? And they said, nope. You know, and I understand that. Like, I only like certain pizza flavors. You know, I'm not going to, you know, I want my sure. pizza. But um, when you're writing, I don't feel it's helpful to be thinking that way you know yeah I'm, I've to, uh, that way. it doesn't do me any good because people you know I think being unclassifiable doesn't help get your book out there or anything like that but it makes writing more fun yeah I think that's the key distinction right is the the ability to be sort of an authentic um I guess voice within your own your own genre is I think very 
freedom inducing. I know for me, I love that. And so, you know, I, because I'm sure like you have people in my life, they're like, just, just write a romance novel, do it like this. You can easily do it and you're going to make a bunch of money. And it's like, yeah, I can't really bring myself to do that. It's I mean, maybe I'll get to that point, but, um, it's really hard. I mean, I don't think it is easy to do. I know someone who does it and they're really good. It's not, you have to really, that has to be the thing you want to talk about or think about for a year, you know, or sure. be in, you know? Yeah. I knew a guy too, who wrote, um, was a ghostwriter for like thrillers and he had written like a couple novels that were like super ultimate bestsellers. And he's just like, yeah, I got no, I mean, he got money of course, but he's like, it's kind of weird. I got no credit. And it's like, I see him on the bestseller list and I see the person like going to readings, you know? <laughs> so it's kind of weird, but, um, yeah, you know, it's a question. I don't, my last book, I mean, I've tried to be more, I don't want to say genre conscious around sales, but I think it, de- thinking about this has definitely driven me to write better books. And the reason I say that is that I think that the book, the story, the film, whatever, it always ends with the audience. It always ends with the reader. And so if you have that perspective, then it can change you as an artist. But, you know, it's funny you talk. I've met readers like that too, at like BoucherCon or or Left Coast, where they're just like, yeah, I read this is what I read. Read this person. If the next person doesn't have it just like that, I'm not going to read it. And I, you know, I think that's fine. I I don't have a problem with it. Um, I just wish some of those readers read stuff that I wrote so they would all buy that book. <laughs> but, well, they you know. will. Now, I haven't read all the ones. I haven't caught up with you. I'm reading the new one now. But there are scenes in Know Me from Smoke that are like indelible. I think about them all the time. It's a story that's so perfectly, it unfolds so perfectly. And, and the ironies are so precise and, you know, and, it's exhilarating to read. And so everybody would like that book, but they, they may be afraid of it because they don't know, well, well where am sure. I? You know, it doesn't hurt you to read something that you feel a little disoriented about for a little while. It doesn't, you know, there's no permanent damage. <laughs> In fact, read- it might just be the opposite, right? In, yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. I highly recommend it. It's fun. And my publisher is an English publisher. And when I first discovered him and started reading the people, my co-publishees or whatever, I really was interested. There is a difference between what the Eng- English reader seems to tolerate or than the American. And I think sure. American is a little more formulaic. Yep. Yep. And puritanical. Yeah, maybe. And I mean, I think it's the same way with French writers, right? Like we see a lot of um, noir writers from America selling books pretty well in France and not well here. I think of like Jake Hinkson is, is one example, which I think he's done well the past couple of books. But yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think you have to write the book that's inside you and, you know, do what you can with it. I, I agree about, I, I assume you're talking about Fahrenheit Press. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think there's a number of books, um, maybe not a number, dozens that are really different um, and really unique books. Um, I think this one pure, which is published through that, uh, press is one, you know, there's great books like blood and cinders by DDC Morgan. Um, I, gosh, I, there's, there's tons. Um, did you, did you read, um, um, 
what is it? Mark Ramsden's book, the serial killer book. What is I that? haven't read that yet, but I have, oh. I have the books. What is it? Um, Dread and the Art of Serial yep. Killing. Dread and the Art of Serial Killing. Yep. Subversion of the serial killer genre. It's terrific. And it's, it has a Dickens thing going. And, you know, it's so satisfying. It's so funny. And I don't think, you know, it's it's really fun, that one. And I know it from these conventions. People love serial killers. It's like a sea of older women and very sweet looking people who are like <laughs> into it. And right. like gory things about serial killing, you know, from like sure, yeah. sick people and stuff. It's such an interesting thing. You know, how yeah. people love that. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. Um, I think Chris Black edited that book, which he's edited my books through Fahrenheit. Uh-huh. Did he edit your book as well? No. No. Yeah. He he's a phenomenal editor and he's found some um, and it's not just the editorial work, it's the the curatorial work that he's done mm-hmm. to get that group of books on that Fahrenheit the Fahrenheit 13 imprint specifically. I mean, yes. there are some books on there that are just, you know. Yeah, it's hard to describe, but, um, you know, I also think there's a thing where it's true that there are writers who just kind of get discovered later on and, or it's the right time at a certain time. And and so, you know, I think that's fair. Um, going back to the serial killer idea, there's a great book I read years ago called the storytelling animal. Have you heard of this book? No. It's by a guy named Jonathan Gottschall. He's an academic and he did a bunch of studies on storytelling and his, his chief argument or main contention is that storytelling is actually an evolutionary trait for humans in which uh, we tell scary stories so we can rehearse what we do to survive in those actual situations, which made a lot of sense to me, um, especially given what kinds of stories people like. I mean, any thoughts around, does that make sense to you or is that just crazy? I don't know. Tom read something that the, the most universal nightmare is pursuit is that you're being chased? Sure. So I don't know if the stories are told to tame our fears, you know, in the animal part of us, or because we're problem solvers, tool builders. You know, I like the procedural aspect of things sometimes. Um, because I know that, you know, sometimes violence really bothers me in books. Now, the dread and serial has a lot of grotesque sort of stuff because it's a serious it's playing with all the serial killer things but um other people like it so you know that's where i don't really get i i respect horror but i don't um enjoy horror unless it's very well done right so i but i don't i know that many people find it a cathartic experience to read horror. so yeah it's interesting what we love i mean (laughs) <laughs> the universal nightmares pursuit. That's really interesting. Yeah. I think that sort of is in line with what I've always thought. Uh, that makes sense. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Um, well, so let me walk back to the unreliable narrator part of things, which so I, I, I would contend that like in pure, let's just talk about that book for now. The, the narrator is actually more reliable than most any narrator. Um, I can find across at least contemporary fiction. Um, so I'm just going to read one little passage, right? Wow, this is, uh, I'm not going to give anything away, I don't think. But uh, chapter 23, it's early in the book. She says, I, a profane, unobservant, atheist Jew, frequent liar and grieving loser, 
had become the newest member of, and you're going to have to correct me on this on the pronunciation here, but the newest member of Valley Havarim Shevra Kadisha, a Jewish burial society divided into two groups, one male and the other female, on call 24-7 and performing mitzvah at no cost on the bereaved out of two rooms in the mortuary of House of Sepulchre's Memorial Grove in Woodland Hills. So this character, to atone for Anne's death, sort of, um, becomes a member of this Jewish burial society. Um, and, you know, she calls herself a atheist Jew. Um, I just find it so interesting. I mean, she's like, she's totally honest at that moment with herself. Um, so I, I'm just wondering what you, what you're, what you were thinking when you were writing that and when you were um, building this character. I, I'm very interested in death things and for my other books, though, that my son is becoming a rabbi. So Okay. Um, I That's was, great. As from a, my dad was raised Orthodox. He was a pretty unobservant Jew. We were not a observant family. Um, I've learned a lot about, you know, just from my son about different things. And one of the things I was really impressed with, it's um, Hevra Kadisha. And anyway, Muslims do the same thing. It's simply that there's a certain series of... Uh, rituals when a person dies they're never left alone that's the first thing they always have someone guarding them they um are bathed sort of in a ritual way with water and dressed in, in special linen clothes and put in a plain box everything is the same it's very simple there's no objects or belongings or things like that um and buried in a you know, you're supposed to go back to the earth. There's no, um, it's like a green burial, really. And Muslims do the same thing. And it has to happen in a very short period of time. And there are lots of ideas that go with it. The night before the burial, someone sits with the body that's called a shomer. And I'm writing about that. There's a sequel to Pure I'm writing now. And she she does that for someone. She wow, sits. that's interesting. Okay. But a lot of Jews are not, you know, I'm an atheist Jew. Sure. And the more I've learned about Judaism and Jewish history, I have you know, identified, you know, I mean, I always did, but I was more aware of it. But the whole God thing is a, I don't know, it's kind of vague, but she, she's not atoning really. She just wants to do something good. She feels bad because she didn't do what she could have or her best for her really last mm -hmm relative you know but it's sure. you know, there's a and so she um you know she does the thing that i think she also wishes she could have done i think a lot of us do things for others that we wish we could have done that we fail to do for maybe people we should have i think a lot of parents get a lot out of parenting when they can give to their kids what they didn't get or something like that i just think we're but anyway and it's an interesting um i just found it interesting and touching it's a very gentle simple thing yeah. also the when you're doing it you don't know the last name of the person that you're bathing and dressing the hebrew name only is on the whiteboard mm -hmm. and so she suspects that this woman was murdered and she doesn't really know who she is so she can't find out easily. Yep. So that's yeah. No. And that jumps off the mystery, which is, yeah. I think the really masterful part of this story. Um, and I don't want to give, honestly, I want people to read the book. I don't want to give a bunch of stuff away. Um, so I think that's a good precursor. It's, it's a very unique novel. I also think 
Oh, you'll have to forgive my pronunciation. Uh, I am a malpracticing Catholic currently. Um, grew up Catholic. Uh, well, let's let's talk about that a little bit. What about um, faith and novels? I mean, as a Catholic, you know, I'm super familiar with Flannery O'Connor, Graham Greene, um, some of these, I guess, more Catholic novelists. Um, but is that missing from popular fiction? Faith in 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 popular fiction these days, or I mean, what I do you think? think? I think not Catholic, but the Christ, you know, as an English major, which is, you know, Western culture, it's a, it's a Christian, a Christian uh, kind of view, a Christian narrative. There's a thing, there's redemption. Most, the shape of most narratives is, is that story of redemption of maybe the fall of all these things, which is a beautiful story, but not, it's interesting. I was just reading a book about Yiddish, that included uh, someone that knew a lot about Yiddish literature and this whole world of Yiddish novels and writers and stuff that were wiped out in the Holocaust. And she says they have a different story. And maybe because Jews, especially in Europe, had a pretty iffy existence, it didn't have that kind of redemption thing. They didn't end as often uh, in that shape, which was a revelation to me. And I'm sure that other cultures have different. Absolutely. Narrative, but I think all of us, you know, the the things that face all of us are, you know, a creator maybe, or where, what your relationship is to that, if any, or a soul or afterlife. All these things that people wrestle with, you know, and death. I mean, that's really a huge thing. So, but you know, you rejoice and you feel the Catholic world. And you feel him, you know, bristling against it at times. It's interesting, but it's, I think it's a very, I think Western culture is basically a Christian point of view. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think over the, you know, I guess past few years, we've seen more, I would like to say we've seen a lot more types, shapes of stories, as you call them, pop up in sort of Western popular culture. I'm not sure we have. I mean, you know, I was I went to school at a historically black college uh, for my undergraduate degree in journalism, and it was through an English department. And so we spent a lot of time reading um, neo-slave narratives, slave narratives, uh, firsthand accounts, um, not just of African-Americans, but um, Native Americans. And so the shapes of those stories are absolutely uh, different, and they're not always about redemption. Um, I think, you know... I would probably argue that like noir fiction, which isn't that popular in America, which is what I think you and I both write. I think it is more of a nihilistic uh, approach to shaping a story. Um, most of my stories don't turn out well necessarily. Um, and that's the point of them. So I don't know. I mean, maybe there's just. Uh... I think noir is. The relationship is really determined by the relationship of the reader to the characters, you know, and whether they, because uh, bad things happen to, you know, heroes, you know, the whatever the opposite of noir is. But I think it's an attitude, you know. I think I I was on a panel and they had to define noir, and I said it's when bad things happen to fucked up people, you know. <laughs> sure. The opposite of noir is when bad things happen to good people. There's no, you don't open, you know, my character, you know, 
wants to be a good person. I mean, she's not a bad person, but you know, things are, you know, bad things happen. I think yeah. at one point she calls herself a crawler into holes, which, really? uh, <laughs> yeah, there's some, there's some phenomenal lines in the book. Oh, and I want to actually read one more before we go, but, um, yeah, I mean, I don't, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, I love these grand thematic elements popping up in what is, you know, ostensibly a genre type book, which again, we go back to our earlier conversation is, is pretty much BS, but what has been your experience at conferences aside from meeting readers? I mean, have you ha- have you found a good community of crime writers uh, at some of those places? Great people. It's really fun. I've met all kinds of great people and discovered great books. Sometimes, you know, to be honest, I guess um, it's fun. You know, I like it. With COVID, it's, you know, now I worry a little about COVID, but yeah. So I think they're really fun. I think they're really uh, interesting. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, New Orleans got canceled because of that. There was a conference in New Orleans most of us were going to, and that got canceled. But that was during the height of sort of a COVID outbreak in the city, which made, you know, it made sense. And you felt for the organizers. Uh, What we should say about this book, it's set during the COVID lockdown period. And that is a major thrust of the situational aspects of the book. I think... I I don't want to say I've read a ton of stuff set in that time period, but you know, I've seen enough, whether it's episodic television or whatever else. I mean, I thought you did just this really amazing. So first off, it's an LA book in the sense of like, it's very clear. It's Los Angeles. I mean, it's, it feels like an LA book, but COVID lockdown LA and that. So I thought you did a really good job with conveying that experience. And I think what will be a timeless way does it mirror somewhat your experience during that time or is it? You know, it's, you know, I'm 71. Oops. Yikes. Going on. What's next? I don't know. Uh, And when you get COVID and you're my age, there's all these other risks and I developed certain health problems during that period. I don't know if I got COVID, but I got you know, as as Warren Zevon would say, is it Zevon or Zevon? My shit got fucked up sort of during that period. And I have to, you know, it's very hard to, uh, you sort of go, wow, now that happened. You know, I have to be careful about this. And then every time I read something, it says, well, if you're over 65, basically, you know, so I have to take it more seriously. And I felt very claustrophobic during that period. Sure. We weren't going anywhere. We weren't, you know, um, couldn't go. To just made the choice to stay home. Kid. Yeah. Well, you know, and my kid would be at the end of the driveway and it was kind of stressful, but, uh, you know, I, I also wanted her, my character's aunt dies and she's, her aunt lives in an assisted living and she ends up living there during the lockdown, which I thought would be an interesting, uh, situation oh it totally threw that whole idea on its head whereas like people were touching the glass to see grandma and stuff you know i mean yeah it was it was very interesting um i also have to point out i love the fact that you mentioned warren zevon another one of my my favorites um absolutely yeah uh i sometimes get caught late at night watching youtube clips of warren zevon on uh, letterman because he has some amazing performances um yeah Vote for him for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame now. The voting is open. Oh, real people can vote on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I thought it was just like a like a scam thing where they just directed me to a 
the website, but anyway. he should already be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yes. What a joke that he's not. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's really, that's interesting. Yeah. He was a friend. I. It's funny. He was a friend of Hunter S. Thompson. And I was reading recently um, on the last episode of the podcast, I read something from Hunter's letters in his book, The Proud Highway, but what an amazing letter writer. And I guess they were buddies at one time. Um, and I guess he was a musical prodigy too. Sure. Sure. You mean when he was a kid, he sort of just could play piano and guitar. Is that what his deal was? I think he was really gifted, but then didn't want to you know, anyway, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. He sort of has this, um, if, if for anybody who's listening has not heard Warren Zevon, that's an immediate correction you need to make in your life. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I have on vinyl, I think it's a excitable boy, the album excitable boy, which is a great one, but yeah, he sort of has this like Beethoven look to him and he's like playing rock and roll. He, yeah. He's just such a great, the lyrics are great. Um, what a great performer. Um, yeah. I'm going to vote for him for rock and roll. Hall. I, I didn't realize that that's like exercising the right to vote. I mean, come on. We got... right. Forget, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Forget who's down ballot. We got to, you know, get over to the rock and roll hall of fame. That's very cool. Thanks for telling me. Um, yeah. It's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, I thought it, it's, and the one thing I should say about your book though, is that I do think there are people who are like, I don't want to read a COVID book. It's not that. So I want to make that really clear. Like that's just kind of the situational aspect, but the book is really personal and interesting and uh, well, exciting, you. you know? So yeah, I appreciate you writing it. I really appreciate it. It was a weird book to write. I felt like I was really. How, how many words is the book? Do you know? I don't know. I have no idea. Probably around 80,000 or so. It's, it's like the standard novel length. That, it's, how hard is it to write a book? Let's talk about that for a minute. How hard is it to write a book? Fucking hard. Very hard. It's like uh, when it's hard for me, it's like I'm crawling through, you know, it's very hard. But it's, it's, um, it's exciting and it's so satisfying, isn't it? There's no, nothing like it. I mean, I think so. Do you have the thing where, because I mean, yeah, especially the last two years for me, it's been a real crawl. I I think part of that's like my day job and stuff. But um, do you find, I mean, I think there's probably a relief when you finish, but do you, do you feel like you end with that disappointment? Like it's not as good as I could. And then you go back to it later and hopefully it's better. Is that what happens to you or how does that work? Like, what did I do? What just happened? You know, um, I love to write, so I get a lot of satisfaction out of it. I, you know, I, I don't know how to do it. Who said it? Someone said, you know, you're a writer, you know, you're a writer of writing is extraordinarily difficult for you. That's sure. how, I, you know, it's just, I, I love words. I, I am delighted when someone appears, walks in a door that I didn't know a character comes in or something happens but usually you know i'm trying to work out something a problem or something in my own head you know yeah uh, you what, know, what's I, your what's your daily process are do you write on a daily basis on the computer I try, to, I try to um you know things happen but yeah i just write and then i do what you do i heard you i always i mean i rewrite constantly oh you know i'll rewrite something 20 times but i'll go back over the last chapter or two and you know move from there sometimes i'm really stuck and i'll uh 
you know, be stuck for a while. But, you know, I don't, you just sit down and write. That's all you do. I type. My husband, by the way, writes longhand like your previous guest. Um, I used to type up his books, but I don't anymore. Um, he can pay someone now. No one can read it now. So he has to, <laughs> but uh, he was working and so I was home doing my dissertation. So I did it. But, uh, you know, it's a great way because you're rewriting as you type it in. So you've got that first Sure. It's just another level of editing or sort of like creativity. Um, That's interesting about typing the stories. What, I mean, I have to believe if I were to type out a whole book that someone wrote, who wasn't me, I would learn something from that. I mean, did you feel like that was a learning process or just a laborious? I would just have struggle with his writing handwriting, but I've learned so much from him. Obviously his books are really to sort of live with those books and read those books and you know, I don't write anything like him, but obviously I learned a lot. I learned a lot from TV too. I really did. You have to know when a scene ends and, you know, it's fun. And uh, I don't, may not have always learned that, but I think I learned a lot from that. I know that's a very formulaic thing, but it's just also from writing poetry, you know, yeah, um, kind of be a little pithy or something, but. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, there's a great book I read years ago called the way of the screenwriter. And it's like one of the main things I took from it was, and I apply it to my work as a novelist is get in late, get out early. You know what I mean? Of a scene, get in late, get out early. It's like that helps you sort of navigate the right time to enter a scene and leave it uh, where characters are. Um, So yeah, I can see, I mean, I feel like script writing teaches one a lot about writing novels and vice versa. Probably. I mean, but aren't they such different mediums to you? The screen Completely. and yeah. There are a lot of novels now that are like scripts. Very, you know, uh, it's kind of interesting that that's happening. You know? Yeah, and I wonder if it's um. I mean, I feel like I was a I'm a writer who was, I guess, coddled by the screen. You know, I think some of my favorite writers, if I were really to look at my own work, is probably you know people like Tarantino. Um, you know, Robert Altman, it, things like that. So I, I wonder if uh, that's happening a little bit more. Do you know what I mean? Like sort of social media brain or something is doing something to novels. I don't know. You, know, you have scenes where I hear everything. Like in Know Me From Smoke, there's always this ice, this drink, the clink of ice. I forgot what the drink. I mean, I don't know. That's not just that, but you create such a, to me, the best writing is like clear. The the reader is in the scene. I didn't know you're, I forget your writing, but it's so clear. It's so, the details are so perfect and they mean something about the people that it's, in, you know, again, it's so powerful. You're a really good writer. You're one of my favorite writers. Oh you my know, God, you're way too nice. You're my, <laughs> you represent a significant portion of my readership. Really Please do. be well. I really you know, I think a lot of noir is, well, there's, I think it's, it's too easily, you know, there's a form, there's isn't a formula, but it, it ha, you know, it needs to be very carefully done because it's, there's a lot of it. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I mean, you also remind me of, and I promise to let you go soon, but you remind me of, and I, it's a poet who said this and I'm forgetting any poet friends who listen to this are going to be mad at me, but someone said, you know, you know, language is 
written well when it it disappears as language and it's just it is what it is That's um, great. yeah and i i'm not getting the quote wrong but I, i've always tried to think about that i mean there are some writers who do that really well but uh you know it's hard i mean there are definitely popular novelists and i'm not going to name them because i'm happy for anybody selling books but I, I i get some of the books seem very vain to me um in the sense of like overwrought language uh sentences that are beautiful just to be beautiful sentences um oh so i find that interesting you can when you can tell that a writer was proud of a sentence or thought that that's not good yeah <laughs> it's just not good yeah, yeah. amusing himself or herself that's not good yeah i have trouble reading writers like that and i'm reading a couple now because I wanted to catch up on some writing or some reading, but I'm like, I'm going to put this book down and it's a bestseller in 35 countries. I mean, I'm not, you know, so I, everybody has preferences and, and that's fine. Um, and style, but yeah, it is interesting. I mean, I think in the crime fiction world, there, there's sort of a nuts and bolts carpentry aspect to it, you know, where it's like, what is util what is, what is a utility, a beautiful utility for this sentence or whatever. And if you have that, I think you're on your way to something good usually. Um, yeah. And then short. So j before I let you go, short stories wise, um, do you write a lot of short stories? Cause I haven't seen many I published. Write one. I said I'd write one for someone and I should be doing it. And I'm blanking on it. I've written a couple. Um, I wrote one that uh, got, what is it? Distinguished. You know, it didn't make best short stories, but it's in the back as a distinguished short story that is in uh, the Journal of NoirCon that I kind of like. About, oh, sure. Yeah. About uh, in the tours in LA where they take you to where all the murders were. You know, they have yep. stars. Yep, absolutely. About the kick the bucket tour. And I sort of like that one. It's, you know, I there's something about short stories. They're like a trick. I respect them, but I feel like I'm, I know where I'm going before, you know, when I start. Where in mm -hmm. a novel, I don't know everything yet. Yeah, the journey's not as mapped out in a novel. Yeah, that's interesting yeah. to think about. So it's, it's, it's different. And then I wrote one for a couple, one for Pulp, was it Pulp? noir magazine or tech noir issue which is kind of crazy and i i oh pulp modern did you write for pulp modern or was it yeah the tech noir issue. yeah okay yeah, yeah very cool this warehouse that's run, the, the a warehouse where only i think short stories are more conceptual somehow but anyway then character driven but it's a there's only one human being in the warehouse and it's all automated and things go awry and I wrote another one about, it's also kind of science fiction-y kind of thing. But, um, oh, and one about a person who, it's called a, that was in an anthology, a, a, the San Diego Sisters in Crime anthology, about sure. a person, you don't know if it's a man or a woman, who, whom you hire to kill you, a discreet personal uh -huh. Yeah. Okay, But I always get a feeling that I'm, I feel somehow there's a lot of artifice or feel kind of fake when I write short stories. Do you ever, I don't know what, how to describe it. I enjoy it, but I like uh, the open-ended part of a novel better or a novella. I wrote a novella too that I like. I had a lot of fun with, and that's was noir also. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. I think some people do it better than others, but I guess for me, 
writing a short story might be the equivalent of like performing a card trick at a cocktail party. Whereas a novel is like, you're coming to see the whole show kind of thing. And and then there's like, sort of like listen to a hit single versus the whole album. Um, yeah, yeah. So I don't, I don't know. That's interesting to think about. Um, yeah. I mean, when I think about short story collections, I get really interested. I think Daniel Woodrell has a great one called the outlaw album. Um, of course, Flannery O'Connor is one of my favorite writers and has a number of collections, but yeah, it's also really hard to get a short story collection published and to write enough. So, you know, I think we probably see less than we should, but yeah, well, that's really interesting. Um, it has been great talking to you. I want to read one line from your book that I love just to celebrate the book and just to remind people, uh, pure is written by Joe Perry. It's uh, available at FahrenheitPress.com. It's also available all the other places you buy books. Um, I'm just going to read one line that I really love, and uh, I think we could end there. Thank you. It's only one line, and it's near the, near the end of the book, but I'm going to read it. Every accident is the flowering of hidden causes, secret failures, and provocations. I don't know. I just love that part, and if you read the book, You'll get to that and it'll just all unlock for you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for joining Roughneck Dispatch and talking to me. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Roughneck Dispatch is looking for sponsors, corporate, individual presses, publishers, or otherwise. Go ahead and get a touch if that's of interest to you. For now, we say adios until next time. You know we don't have the money to license a Warren Zevon song. So... We can go ahead and read you some of his badass lyrics. I went home with the waitress the way I always do. How was I to know she was with the Russians too? I was gambling in Havana. I took a little risk. Send lawyers, guns, and money. Dad, get me out of this. Ha!